From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. If you've ever been pulled over for driving two or three miles over the speed limit, you may have been subject to taxation by citation. Local governments enforcing rules and fees, not for public safety, but to generate revenue. A recent study of taxation by citation in Georgia finds that short-term boost to city coffers can have long-term costs to citizen morale. We're joined by a co-author of that study to help us understand the tricky tickets and fees. Jennifer McDonald, Senior Research Analyst for the Institute for Justice. That's a nonprofit libertarian public interest law firm joining us from NPR in Washington. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so how'd I do? That's my understanding of taxation by citation. What would you add to that? You've got it pretty well. Um, You know, taxation by citation occurs when governments use their power to enforce municipal code ordinances out of a desire to raise revenue rather than out of a desire to protect public safety. So how would you define governments that are doing it excessively? The cities that we studied in our report are, uh, excuse me, are pursuing these minor violations quite aggressively. Mm -hmm. So their percentage that they're getting from fines and fees of their revenues is considerably higher than other similar cities in Georgia. Um, Our cities, you know, raised between 14 and 25 percent of their total revenues from fines and fees alone between 2012 and 2016, whereas cities of similar size throughout Georgia averaged about 3 percent. And the cities you looked at, Clarkston, Morrow, and Riverdale. So why highlight these three in particular? How much revenue are they getting compared to other cities, and and how are they doing it? Clarkston, Morrow, and Riverdale appeared on a kind of top list of worst offenders for generating a substantial amount of their revenues through fines and fees. And this list was originally conducted by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights when they started looking into this issue in the wake of the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, a few years ago. So we identified these cities as, you know, taking this high percentage and then also looked into Georgia state law and found that you've really got the perfect environment for taxation by citation in Georgia. And that's because Georgia state law allows municipalities to run and fund their own municipal courts. So all of a sudden you've got law enforcement and a judicial system that need to fund themselves from the very activities that they conduct. Um, So there's kind of a perverse incentive there to issue as many citations as you can in order to raise enough revenue to run your department. Are there characteristics of those three cities and others that make a lot of revenue off of taxation by citation that make it more likely to fall into this pattern? You mentioned the judicial, but maybe the demographics. Sure. Um, All three of the cities that we looked at are on the outskirts of Atlanta. They are all uh, lower income than average, which means they already have a smaller tax base. And so that creates more pressure on their budgets. Um, They also have higher percentages of minority populations. So when you combine these kind of disadvantaged communities that are working and low income, uh, it's more difficult to fight the citations that you're receiving, right? Mm -hmm. Why take off work to fight a $100 ticket when you could just pay it and move on? And so it just kind of creates an opportunity for these cities to run rampant when it comes to these citations.
So the image of, you know, a small town police officer sitting next to a a quick change in the speed limit is a common one. That's been around for a long time. Is this happening more and more often? In our studies that we looked at, the revenues from fines and fees peaked in 2012, which makes sense because that's around the time that the economy started recovering from the 2008 financial crisis. So we see this kind of direct relationship between economic health and pursuing fines and fees. The problem is once you once these cities, you know, use fines and fees to balance their budgets, even as there becomes less pressure on the economy, this, you know, system of using fines and fees to help generate municipal revenue, it's hard to get rid of it. It mm-hmm. just becomes baked in. Mm-hmm. Um So it, you know, we'd see it probably going up and down cyclically with the economy. But right now, we'll see. They're down around uh, between 10 and 15 percent now. So what are examples of how this plays out? More policing, more motor vehicle stops? What are some of the other fines and fees or methods for getting more revenue? In addition to those minor traffic citations, we do see a lot of municipal code enforcement which usually has to do with the aesthetics of your property. So we see tickets for things like overgrown grass in the front yard or maybe cracks in your driveway or maybe a little too much storage uh, in your carport. And so it's these things that might not look so great, you know, it has a little uh, lower curb appeal than might be ideal, but it's not anything that's actually posing, you know, risk to public safety. I'm speaking with senior research analyst Jennifer McDonald from the Institute of Justice, and we're discussing her work and contributions to a report into high rates of tickets and fees from Georgia cities like Clarkston, Morrow, and Riverdale. It's called Taxation by Citation. So that's where municipalities, rather than focusing on public safety, impose fees to help help sort of support their local revenue. And there are some powerful incentives here, but it's not as if city leaders are twirling their mustaches or, you know, thinking, let's make money off of our citizens. And and I don't imagine anyone becomes a police officer to write tickets all day. But what are the effects on communities? What did your report find on how all this increasing reliance on fines affects them? We found that individuals who received citations in the last year from their, you know, their local governments, they have uh, significantly lower trust in their police departments to do what's right for them, in their courts to do what's right for them, and in their city governments. And so you have this erosion of, you know, cooperation and trust within the community that can have, you know, long lasting effects. You and your colleagues spent time in Georgia conducting your research and speaking with some locals. What did you take away from those conversations? In talking to the locals, I think the the thing that really stuck with me is when the locals would explain how they thought that, you know, police and prosecutors were using fines and fees as a revenue generator. So I talked to one gentleman who said, you know, they they just really want to hit you in the pocketbook. You know, it just keeps coming. And so that was a, a pretty regular thing that we heard. Um, you know, obviously, there was a lot of frustration of individuals who were in the courtrooms there to fight their tickets. And so it was pretty easy to see that, you know, these systems have some knock on effects that might be higher cost than not having the fines and fees revenue at all. There's a specific case in Doraville. Your client, Hilda Brucker, ended up facing surprise fees over her driveway. What stands out about her case? 
I think what really stands out about Hilda's case is that she had lived in Doraville for 25 years, and those cracks in her driveway had been there when she bought the house. And so it was interesting to her that, you know, all of the sudden this was becoming a problem. You know, why am I all of a sudden getting this ticket? Um, and so, you know, that shows that all of a sudden the city is paying attention because they probably are looking for a way to generate more revenue. But, you know, there is a case with a cracked driveway. There is a public safety case to be made there that you may not get with tall grass, that somebody could be walking along there and fall in one of the cracks and hurt themselves. I mean, what? how do you balance the some of these are public safety regulations for a reason to help prevent lawsuits, for example, and others are just excessive? Where do you draw the line? We, when we were doing our field work down in Georgia in these cities, we looked at all of these different code violations along, you know, that we we had seen. And so, and we graded them, you know, on a one to five scale between, you know, purely aesthetic to posing serious health and safety risks. And the majority of the violations that we observed were barely kind of moderately risky. And so you might see things like a crack driveway, but in Hilda's case, we're not talking about massive cracks that someone can step in and twist an ankle. We're talking about, you know, really just purely aesthetic looking cracks throughout the concrete. Mm -hmm. And so trying to figure out, you know, what really poses uh, a risk to public safety is something that, you know, there's some discretion involved in that. But I think the majority of the aesthetic things that we saw, you know, pretty much everybody would agree that that's not going to, you know, cause anybody to hurt themselves. Since your report has come out, some of the cities have responded. Here is city manager of Clarkston, Robin Gomez, speaking with Eleven Alive about the report. In Clarkston, we've, we've gone through significant changes. And now that their data that they are sending out now is... It, it, although it is accurate data, and that's what did happen, it's there have been significant changes, especially in the last four years, where the number of citations and tickets issued and the corresponding revenue have drastically declined. What happens to somebody who cannot pay these fees? If individuals are not able to pay these fees, and this isn't, you know, you have 30 days to pay, it's when you go to court, can you pay this ticket by Friday? So we're talking about having to come up with a significant amount of cash on a relatively short notice. The judges do offer the option that individuals be put on probation. And what happens is there are private probation companies that are contracted with the city who will accept kind of a monthly payment plan from this individual if they can't afford to make that payment all at once. The problem with that is these companies charge pretty high uh, fees, you know, a percentage kind of like your your credit card interest rate. Mm-hmm. And so individuals who have, you know, a $250 ticket might, might end up paying upwards of $1,000 by the time they're done. Mm-hmm. This is happening all over the country, but this did come to the fore after Michael Brown was shot by police in Ferguson, Missouri. You mentioned Ferguson earlier. All the focus on municipal governments in St. Louis, all this focus came onto this municipal government in St. Louis, uh, quote, treating their citizens as nothing more than ATM. So using police to write as many citations as possible. Obviously, a very tragic turn in Ferguson, uh, one of the underlying factors that led to the Black Lives Matter movement. They did move to cap those, those fees in 2015. But how about the citizens in Georgia? Were you studied? Were people pushing back? Were municipalities or local governments pushing back and fighting these fees in court? I think, you know, there are some people who go to court to try and, you know, fight the fee, but we saw guilty verdicts in 97% of the cases that we observed. 
um, what we saw was municipal courts that operate like well-oiled machines. You know, everybody gets maybe a minute of time with the judge. Um, there's not an opportunity to say, you know, Your Honor, this is why I shouldn't have this ticket. There's no opportunity to really present your defense. You can either, you know, plead guilty or no contest, or you can decide to go to trial, but that drags everything out, has the potential to, you know, cost more money. Nobody's going to hire an attorney to fight a $250 fee. Mm -hmm. So what we really see is just, you know, kind of an assembly line of people going in and paying and pleading and moving on out. And so, you know, there's no wonder that people think that this, you know, might be a little bit of a racket rather than truly, you know, in their best interest. How about Robin Gomez, city manager of Clarkston, said we've seen improvement down from 25 percent to nine or 10 percent of city revenues. How does that stack up to what you feel is the ideal balance of city fees and revenues? It's, it's definitely an improvement. Um, you know, going the percentage moving down is always a good thing. But let's not forget that during the time that we observed, similar cities were only getting about 3% from fines and fees. And so while this is better, 10% is still quite a lot of money. Um, and even post-2012, uh, after the peak of these fines and fees, our three cities uh, still had um, fines and fees be their second largest source of revenue. And so it's hard to, you know, draw a line between what is the correct percentage or what is the, you know, the correct number of tickets. But it's pretty much, you know, when we see cities that, you know, fund a significant amount of their budgets through fines and fees, it's worth, you know, examining further to see what's going on. Jennifer McDonald, she is Senior Research Analyst from the Institute of Justice. Thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we chat with author Margaret Wilkerson Sexton about her new novel and about discovering resilience passed down through generations and generations of black families. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Ava King is a newly divorced mother of a teenage son when she moves into her grandmother's home in posh uptown New Orleans. Ava's the descendant of slaves. Grandma Martha is about as waspy as they come. And their connected past is one of the plot twists in The Revisioners, a new novel by National Book Award finalist Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. There is some magic in The Revisioners, but it's less fantasy than testament to intergenerational bonds, in this case between Ava and her her great-great-great-grandmother, born enslaved on a Louisiana plantation. Well, Sexton is on her way to Georgia for the book tour. She will be at Avid Bookshop in Athens this Friday, November 8th, and at Karis Books in Atlanta on Sunday, November the 10th. But first, she's joining us from Advanced Media Studios at UC Berkeley in California to tell us more about the book. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, this story, The Revisioners, follows two women basically in three different time periods. There's Josephine and Ava. We meet Josephine in 1924. She's a mother, grandmother, a black woman running a farm. What's her life like in this period of time? Well, it's interesting because she, um, we meet her in 1924, and though she's widowed and in her 70s, she's flourishing. She, um, she's surrounded by family and friends. She um, has solid resources. And I think most importantly, she has perspective because she's consistently looking back at her previous life as an enslaved little girl. And you always feel like she's measuring her current self to what she was. And so there's this consistent sense of gratitude that you feel from her. 
and um, and she's in a good place. However, this is the year that a white woman moves next door, and she's lonely, she's insecure, she's younger, and um, she attempts to forge this friendship. And at first, Josephine is reticent for reasons we would understand because of history, um, but the younger woman persists, and they form this cautious relationship that's upended when Josephine learns that um, the neighbor is a member of the clan. Yeah, and we also get... Ava. Uh, This story takes place in 2017. Again, she's a newly single mom. Her mother was black. Her father is white. And then she goes to live with her aging paternal grandmother, Martha, basically to help out. So what what has their relationship been up until then? Very distant, um, very superficial and distant. Ava hasn't had a great relationship with her father. And um, because of that, she's distanced in general from that side of the family. And there's also an, a racial element to it. I think um, I think Martha has become more and more progressive as she's aged, but we definitely get the sense that Martha had to come to terms with her son marrying a black woman and having a biracial child. Mm-hmm. And um, and Ava's failed relationship with her grandmother is a symptom of that sense of coming to terms with it. But however, you know. Ava's grandmother's health is failing and Ava's financially strapped, so she decides it might be a good opportunity to build on that relationship, and it could certainly be a win-win for her logistically. She wouldn't have to pay rent. Her grandmother um, will get some help. And it starts out going fine until Ava's grandmother's behavior becomes more and more erratic and even racist, and um, Josephine's and Ava's storylines, though generations apart, threaten to converge. Yeah, and they both have sons and, and strong relationships with their sons. Josephine's son is called Major. Uh, Ava's son is called King. Both of these names demanding respect. And, and although this is a book, there are strong relationships on this matrilineal, this female line. So much of it is also about the relationship between mothers and sons. What were, what were you exploring there? Well, I think it was a way to, for, I have two black sons, and I think it was a way for me emotionally to tap into the vulnerability of that experience. Um, I just find that I worry for my son in a way both of my sons, but especially my older one, in a way that I don't worry about his twin sister. Hmm. And I I wanted to showcase two characters off the bat in an extremely vulnerable position. They have these sons, and um, and they're at risk just by virtue of their race. Even though their timeline's apart, the risk feels very similar, especially in the beginning. And I thought it would be a good way to just... Um, up the ante of the stakes really early on in the novel and to explore the danger that, that black boys are facing yeah. now and that they have been facing for generations. Right. They're, they're, they're sort of different on an epic scale, but not different in other ways. So th- this is right. one of those things about following generations apart, a number of parallels, sometimes small things like the imagery of um, men fixing cars in the background or the feeling of cooking food with family for family. What, what is this through line of cooking and food here from the time of slavery to contemporary America? I mean, on a basic level, I just love to cook and I love to eat. But on a on a more serious level, I think it's also a way to show the power that these women had in a very limited way. You know, the power to, to provide for their families the power to enrich them and nurture them. It, they were so limited in terms of how much freedom they could have and how much authority they could have, but they did have that. And so it was just, it, it was one of the ways I could show 
non-traditional power, the types of power that women might have had to tap into when they were otherwise constrained. We see also a big contrast here. You have these big, beautiful family meals among the black families, community and good food. But then in 2017 at Grandma Martha's house, the dining is a little different. There's a private uh-huh. chef. <laughs> Mealtime is a bit more stilted. So, so that distinction draws very uh, sharply. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I hadn't consciously thought about that. It's just the way that those characters presented to me. But it is different at Martha's house. Um, you don't feel the comfort. You don't feel the the relaxation or the familiarity. I mean, it's almost like strangers are sitting there eating together. It's very stiff. And um, it it's just that Martha, you know, for it, it sounds cliche, but for all the money she she's been able to accumulate, um, and all the status she just she's she's basically living in this huge empty house and she she even says I thought I would be surrounded by family mm-hmm. and it's it's such a it's such a painful moment because Ava is her granddaughter but you see that distance there she thought she would be surrounded by family and yet she essentially has to pay her granddaughter to live with her Margaret Wilkerson Sexton is my guest author of the new book The Revisioners which comes out tomorrow she's going to be reading at the Avid Bookshop in Athens on Friday and at Karis Books in Atlanta on Sunday uh there's also a memory Eva has of her mom, Gladys, driving her over to visit her grandmother and giving her mm. etiquette lessons before dropping her off. So there's a lot here about how people behave and, and, and the kind of performative aspects of how people behave differently one-on-one. And I'm talking about between, you know, uh, white and black relationships one-on-one versus when they have an audience uh, do you mm. see the so what so what's going on here? What are you exploring in that those kind of relationships? I see it in Charlotte acting differently to Josephine in front of her peers, and similarly Grandma Martha with hers. Right. It's it's interesting because um, we see in that section when when Charlotte is is having her friends over and Josephine comes in, their dynamic totally switches. One on one, Josephine is obviously the authority in the relationship. You know, she she has the power to invite her into her home and she exercises that power. And um, and Charlotte is obviously the one to ask for advice. She's very deferential to Josephine. And then when she's surrounded by other white women, the dynamic that you would expect in that time period arises instantly and really without anyone trying to do it. It just happens naturally. And you see the same thing generations later in Ava's section when Ava's grandmother's having a party and um, or a, a, a book group meeting and she has her, her friends come in, Ava starts to feel more like a servant. Hmm. And she even treats her, the grandmother even treats her more like one. And um, the arrangement becomes more apparent, whereas before there was more of the grandmother and granddaughter relationship coming through. And um, I mean, it's interesting because especially in the contemporary period, these are people who are supposed to be progressive. They're reading books that would suggest that, and they're having discussions that would suggest that, but that old dynamic is still there. Mm-hmm. There there seem to be caught in each period, white characters caught in these dual motivations of wanting to connect, but also exhibiting or carrying the power that being white in America affords them and their thoughts and, right. their, and their actions. Um there's always suspicion, too. You know, um, Ava gets warned by her mother, you know, you don't want to wa- move in with her. And, and people from the neighborhood say, don't let your son talk to the white girls in, in, in high school. Mm-hmm. And similarly, 
um, back in uh, back in Josephine's time. What are you What are you saying there? Mm. Well, I I wanted to play a little bit with because I I thought about having King up against a physical danger the way in the other sections the black characters' bodies are actually at risk. Mm-hmm. And then I thought it might be more interesting to have the danger be more subtle and psychological. And I I wanted to explore what what damage is done to a child and also to the adults who have to prepare the child when when you're constantly expecting oppression and just the weight of carrying that everywhere you know i i don't want to give anything away but for king the major issue for him is not necessarily his body being at physical risk even though we know about police officers in contemporary time and 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 we know about other dangers to black boys that's not what he's up against and i just i just thought how damaging that must be you don't see the concrete effects of it but how damaging that must be over time to carry that burden of expectation of pain mm-hmm. everywhere you go. Yeah, how does that turn in on someone internally? Exactly. Exactly. Well, this concept of, in many ways, I think it's um, Josephine's son tells him, you mm-hmm. know, don't spoil Jericho, his son. Mm, you know, don't mm-hmm. don't don't treat him sweetly because he's he shouldn't get used to sweets. He's going to be in a world of tart. You know, right. So this idea of you have to protect yourself, you have to steal yourself against right. others. Has and that, what am I losing by doing that? You yeah, know, go on with that. I'd like to hear more. Well, because I, I mean, even personally, I feel that I feel um, unless I know otherwise, I I steal myself up for the world that I'm facing. And what am I losing in doing that? What not only not only what aspects of relationships am I losing, but what am I losing personally in terms of my ability to experience a full sense of joy, you know, and a full sense of of being in the moment? It's it's not something I've most of the time I'm not able to access that experience and it's a loss. Well, and then for you as as a mother, you know, the generational progress is slow, but it's there. You see yeah. parents toiling to raise their kids to to be both cautiously realistic, but also hopeful and, and not focus on the differences. So there's risk and there's sacrifice in trying to make it better. What, what does that look like for you now and, and for your kids? Yeah, I know my kids are sick, so I'll have a different answer in 10 years mm-hmm. because, you know, they're so young. It's the the conversations I've had with them so far um, have been so age appropriate that they're benign. But I, you know, I know what's coming. I know as they get older that the conversations will get more serious um, and they'll they'll start to understand what I'm thinking. Like they don't know what I'm thinking when I say things to them. They don't know where it's coming from and they don't know what my fears are. But as they get older, I'll share more of a context with them. And I, I worry that when I share the context, they'll I'll also share without knowing it the fear. Mm-hmm. And I don't want them to walk through the world that way. I want them to be under I want them to understand the world we live in on an intellectual level, but I don't want them to carry the pain of it because I I don't know that it would serve them, you know. And that's actually part of what I wanted to do with this book. I I feel like with my first book a kind of freedom, I was very focused on exploring the intergenerational trauma um, that's passed down. You know, it was about three generations of a New Orleans family um, spanning World War II to post-Katrina. 
And although we met the first narrator um, in the Jim Crow in in the forties in in the Jim Crow South, um, her her lifestyle was actually very polished. And um, and then as as the book progressed, the generations behind her declined in status and economic stability and all of that. And so the book had a dismal tone because it was following this tr- this downward trajectory, attempting to showcase that though Jim Crow was abolished, we have systems like the war on drugs and mass incarceration to come in behind them in their wake to do similar work. Um, and here I, I didn't want to, I mean, it's also obviously the, the themes are extremely heavy, but I, I wanted to show the the power that comes through intergenerationally when you're dealing with ancestors who have survived major trauma. Um, where does all their hope go? Where does all their wisdom go? Where does all that strength go? I believe it resides in the descendants. And so I, I sort of want to approach that with my kids. Like I want to share the context of the world we live in. And I also want to talk to them about the power they've inherited by virtue of being descendants of survivors. And, and what, another thing that carries through it this, is this kind of contact with the spiritual world and magic, which I'm going to just have to leave on the table right now and leave to readers. But this title, mm-hmm. The Revisioners, refers to something in the book, a group in the book. But are we all playing a role in sort of revising history? Is that what you're going for here? Well, that's interesting. You know, nobody has asked about that yet. So, yeah, it's it, it describes this group of this community of enslaved people who perform rituals to attempt to escape slavery, supernatural rituals. And I'll just leave it there, too. Um, but it's also the idea of this community doesn't necessarily extricate itself from the oppression of that time. It works in some ways for them, and in some ways it doesn't work for them. However, we have these descendants many, many generations later who are benefiting from the power that was accumulated during that time. And so the community of revisioners, they didn't necessarily revision their own lives, but we see that their efforts were seen down the line. Mm. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, author of two books now, her 2017 debut called A Kind of Freedom, was nominated for a National Book Award, a lot of other notice. It was a New York Times book review editor's choice and notable book of 2017. Well, her new book is called The Revisioners, and it's out tomorrow. Sexton is on her way to Georgia. She's going to be at Avid Bookshop in Athens on Friday and November 8th, and at Karis Books in Atlanta on Sunday, November 10th. There's more information at gpbnews.org. We will leave you, I think appropriately with a wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Nina Simone as we head into a short break, but stay tuned. When we come back, Grits. A look at how boiled cornmeal became a southern staple when On Second Thought returns. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Whether you go yellow or white, sweet or savory, grits are a southern food staple now popping up on menus all over the country. Food writer Aaron Byers-Murray goes deep in grits, a cultural and culinary journey through the South, talking with growers, millers, and chefs to understand the origins and significance of grits. Along the way, she examines how race, gender, and politics simmer in the significance of this southern staple. Though born in Augusta, Aaron spent most 
most of her life outside of the South. I spoke to her when the book first came out and asked her to share how she opens it with her family's unconventional use for grits. So um, we were... We had moved from Augusta, and we were in Spartanburg at the time, and I was about seven or eight years old, and distinctly remember, we had a, an issue with red ants. You know, that's, that's one of the things about living in the South. You have critters. Um, but we had some red ants crawling on our patio, and my father pulled out a box of instant grits, and he pours a little line of instant grits right along the line of red ants that were trying to come into our house. And we all come out about 20 minutes later, and all I see are these little ant bodies, like exploded popcorn along the patio. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, from that point on, I just thought, you know, I was not, I was a little turned off by grits. <laughs> <laughs> but do you did eventually, you left the South, then you moved back to the South. What was it that changed your mind about grits? <laughs> Well, mostly my mother-in-law, <laughs> who actually prepared grits uh, when I first started coming to visit them. They lived in Knoxville at the time, and she would make grits every time we visited for for weekend breakfast, and, and her grits were phenomenal. They were, you know, uh, piles of luscious corn, and you could pour butter on them, and it was just that that, that kind of brought me back um, to understanding that they are this, they can be this really delicious staple. So you got turned around on grits, and this is something that we're hearing a lot more about grits on, you know, fancy menus, and this traditionally had been food of the poor, but you spoke with chef and restaurateur Sean Brock, who told you grits are the ultimate expression of terroir. Now, this is a French <laughs> word, mostly associated with wine. Can you tell us what it means, terroir, in grits? Yes. Well, what he was referring to really was this idea that, you know, he was getting his grits from small batch uh, millers and producers. And the corn that they were milling was their heirloom varieties of corn that that are now being um, starting to be revived and grown in different parts of the South. And, And so what he was saying is that you could taste the difference between, you know, a corn, a blue corn that's milled a certain way and a red corn that's milled a certain way. Um, and those corns, depending on where they were grown, can evoke the flavors of the soil that they're grown in and the, the location that they're, they're, um, that they can bring with them. And so what he was getting at was just like wine, you know, you can, you, grits are really just a ground corn product. And so you're essentially getting all of the flavors that the corn, you know, the corn brings when it, where, from where it's grown. Well, okay, so we're hearing that more from foodie people, that you can taste terroir in chocolate or you can taste where coffee is grown. Can you really taste a bowl of grits and say, oh, that's from North Carolina? <laughs> I wouldn't be able to pinpoint where, personally. <laughs> he might, but um, I, no, I think that, I think there is something to, if you wanted to taste these, like I said, these small batch millers and, and growers who are um, who are creating grits from different varieties of corn. If you were to cook them the same, taste them side by side, you would you would taste a little nuance and a little difference. Okay, for a lot of people, grits are sure. either light yellow grain uh, that that come in a package of Quaker instant grits, like mm-hmm. like we're used for the fire ants. Are those real grits? They are. They absolutely are. I mean, the the thing is, you know, instant grits. The, the way that they're processed, it just they're, they're, a lot of things are stripped out of the corn. Um, and so you do get the corn in there, but you also have other nutrients that are put back into it. So um, they're, they are grits, and, and they're totally viable, um, and they feed a lot of people. So um, they are, but what we're seeing now are, you know, different varieties coming up and different producers making them. 
So you write that this book was a part of an intentional quest to understand and appreciate the South. Why were grits the vehicle for uh, sliding into that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, anytime I'm in a new place, a new region, um, or traveling or getting to know a place that I've just moved to, I'm, I'm always fascinated by learning through, about that place through its food. And when I got to the South, uh, got back to the South, really, um, I realized that, you know, there were a lot of things that I didn't understand and wanted to, to better understand, including our history and, um, and a lot of different cultural differences between where I had been living and, and where I was living now. So for me, the, anytime you dig into a, a food story or, or research a food topic or food history, you start to uncover these you know, these little stories that maybe um, wouldn't come up in, in daily life. And so for me, the research allowed me to really not just talk about food and think about where this physical product was coming from, but really understand the people who had been ushering it um, throughout history, but also into our modern era. Mm-hmm. Well, you did a similar thing with Shucked, your your book about oysters in the past. But this is a whole different region of the world. And but, but let's go back to that origins of grit. What did you learn about where they come from and how far back we can trace them? Yeah, well, I think so many people associate them with the southeast um, of the United States. But what I learned and what I started in a lot of research and rabbit hole digging, um, you know, you can actually trace it back to the origins of corn. So, you know, corn starts is starting to get cultivated nine or 10,000 years ago in uh, central Mexico. And there's evidence of these hand tools that are like a, you know, a rudimentary mortar and pestle um, grinding mechanism that um, people would use to, and there's, you know, evidence that they were using that with corn. And so right when corn is, you know, being cultivated and brought along, people are grinding the kernels and I'm making the leap, but I'm guessing they're also putting those kernels with water, heating them over a fire and, and creating a porridge. You know, that's basically the, the basic origins of, of where it started. And of course, they move along with the corn itself, um, but they arrive, they, you know, corn doesn't really arrive in the U.S. until, or the southeastern U.S. until about 2,000 years ago. So, so we, you know, we attribute it to this region, but really it goes back much further. Well, and it now is the official prepared food of the state of Georgia, grits. How did, <laughs> how did grits become southern in particular? Well, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of theories about, you know, why a certain dish sticks to a certain area. Um, in, in the South, especially, I think that, unfortunately, our history with slavery um, kind of brought it closer to this region. Um, grits were, like many things, kind of a fuel food, and they um, were inexpensive, and you could grow the corn and also grind it. Um, and so, you know, massive numbers of people were using that as sustenance in this part of the country. Um, and it sticks. And it, it's it's not just food of one race. It's It really was the food of everybody because, you know, the if enslaved communities were eating it, people in the big house were eating it. And, and it ends up sort of throughout, you know, time, it kind of migrates with, with all classes and all races. Um, but I think because so many people were eating that as sustenance in this part of the country, it, it kind of got its, its sticking point here in the southeast. My guest is Erin Byers-Murray. She's author of Grits, A Cultural and Culinary Journey Through the South. Well, the, the, that question about 
origins is a big discussion in food in general, but especially about Southern food right now. And as you said, as you're uncovering this story, so much more gets revealed. You write in the book, name any dish that is considered Southern, trace it back far enough, and you will unearth stories of theft, slavery, appropriation, and lost. It's the questions we, we've talked about a lot on this program. Who can say what is Southern food, and does anybody own grits? But is that, for your purposes, as you were discovering this, the right question? Well, I don't believe it is because it, it, you cannot put an ownership on this, you know, it, it, if you if you try to, it does, it gets sticky, <laughs> and so I, I think what it the the bigger question is like, why is this? Um, how does this dish become so universal? Because it really is beyond the it's beyond who owns it and who eats it every day and who's allowed to prepare it. You know, it's much more about you know how can we share this dish and how can we share the stories of this dish and because. Eventually, it's it's a common ground, right? Well, th- I would hope so. I mean, you de- but we did talk about, you know, it was Central Americans moved to the United States. It was a Native American dish, um, a dish of, as you said, uh, the, the, the enslaved people and the people living in the big house. So there's an evolution here. But you just said, who's allowed to prepare it? I, I, I'd love to know more about that. Who often ends up preparing grits? <laughs> well, now um, we're seeing, you know, it's really showing up on so many fine dining menus. Um, it is, it's being sort of vaulted <laughs> into um, into fine dining by um, by chefs, and many of them are, are male. Um, and uh, traditionally, you know, uh, it was women who were the ones cooking this dish and and bringing it, you know, along through history. Um, they were probably the ones growing the corn, and then they were also the ones grinding it and then cooking it. Um, but in, you know, probably the, around the 80s, uh, grits became a popular dish, um, and it has since kind of turned into, you know, been, been brought into other hands. That's, you know, not to say that we can't go back and honor and celebrate the women who brought it this far, um, but I think that right now what you're seeing is just it's a lot more, uh, it's getting a lot of other kinds of attention because it's being put on fine dining room tables. Mm-hmm. Which I think is funny to me. I remember, uh, you know, seeing somebody eating polenta in an Italian restaurant and saying that, you know, this used to be the food of peasants. And, and mm-hmm. there's a way that like this cheap lobster used to be the food of the poor. It's very interesting how these things have evolved. And you talk to some of these grits gurus <laughs> along the way, you know, uh, um, from Anson Mills, you know, growers, millers, cooks, people who are spending a lot of time and energy elevating, as you said, vaulting grits. What did you learn from them about how they are regarding this food that is simple and how are they keeping it true to its origins? Well, I think what many of uh, of the growers and millers today, especially those, um, the ones you mentioned, Anson Mills, um, another, you know, Geechee Boy Mill, it, you know, they really are looking at it as, a, you know, the farming element. So, so they're looking at the corn product itself, um, and they're trying to revive these historic grains that almost disappeared, basically, um, because they had been bred out or they had, you know, been replaced by um, GMO crops. And so, you know, these corns and these varieties, which they're trying to 
to plant and grow and use and, you know, be able to, to regenerate, um, it, it is a nod back to the past. It's a nod back to how, how you know, before industrialization and before uh, modern milling became such a, a, a big industry, um, you know, this was what, you know, growers, you know, cooks, gardeners were doing. This is, they were growing corn in their garden. They were taking it to the mill and they were, you know, eat, this was the sustenance, you know. Um, so in some ways, they're honoring that. Uh, in other ways, they're creating products that, you know, are now a little higher priced. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a <laughs> 6 to $10 acceptable. bag of grits yeah, instead yeah. of, a, a, you know, a dollar eighty nine at the supermarket, which, of course, there's a big difference in those two. Yeah, uh, and I think, but I think what you, you also see, uh, you know, in, in a lot of my understanding and research, you know, 99% of people who are eating grits right now are eating Quaker, Jim Dandy, Aunt Jemima. You mm-hmm. know, they are still eating the the box of grits that you can find on the shelf. And they're not all instant. They're all, you know, they have old-fashioned grits. They have slow-cooking grits. So it's, you know, the, what most people are actually getting is what you find in the grocery store. Um, these small batch producers, I think, are doing their part but we have to understand that with that comes the price of their their work. Yeah, that so much gets revealed. There's so many little details about grits. Big moment in politics when uh, President Jimmy Carter <laughs> ran for the White House. The national media scrutinized his dietary habits. You, you know, call out and look at your own whiteness and, and the weight of researching this book. But I'm wondering about, you know, what were some of the assumptions that you maybe set out with that were dismantled along the way? Or what were you most surprised to learn about grits? I really, I think um, the history of, of where grits come from and that, there, you know, there is such a Native American influence on, on this dish and so many of our foodways um, that are unacknowledged uh, was a big you know, that was a big learning curve for me and understanding, you know, how you, you, you assume grits and the naming of grits and, and where grits start and, and go to, you know, you just assume that it's got a locational, um, you know, relationship. But, but my, my, my big learning was not only that, not only how deep the history goes, but also that it, it has become such a universal uh, dish. I mean, you can find a version of grits, a corn-based forage, in cultures all over the planet, you know, all over the world. So, um, so really it's, it's that going from, you know, attributing what we can, you know, how, how much we can to the, the people who actually got it to this point, um, and then understanding now that it's not one groups or one um, region's food and identity. It, it really can be a universal product. Well, we do also have a, a recipe. You, you make a call to action. Tell people it's time to go out and buy a bag of stone ground grits from a local <laughs> mill and to make them and offer a basic recipe, which we are going to post on our website at gpbnews.org. Super quick. What's your favorite way to eat grits? Oh, shrimp and grits, always. A Creole version. Yes. Sausage, some andouille, shrimp, mushrooms. That's my favorite. That's my earlier conversation with Erin Byers-Murray. She was talking when her book, Grits, A Cultural and Culinary Journey Through the South, first came out. And you can find her recipe for good grits at our website, gpbnews.org.
On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. And I'm Virginia Prescott, thanking you for spending some time with On Second Thought. <laughs>